0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: From MaximumFun.org and NPR, it's Bullseye. My first guest this week is Michael Stipe. You know him as the lead singer of R.E.M., one of the biggest rock bands in the history of the genre. You might also know him from his fun appearances on shows like At Home with Amy Sedaris and The Adventures of Pete and Pete. Outside of R.E.M., which broke up in 2011, he's collaborated with Warren Zevon, Patti Smith, Billy Bragg, KRS-One, and so many others. He's been recording his own solo material lately, slowly and deliberately, when inspiration strikes. His latest single is called Drive to the Ocean.
0: I'll drive through the mountains, the crumbling west. I'll sing like the whales before man was a pest. Radio transistor, my friend, by my side. I'll drive to the ocean, the ocean. I'll drive.
1: Michael Stipe, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you, Jesse. I'm happy to be here. You were, uh, you were a military kid. Do you remember every stop of your childhood, or were there multiple stops before you
0: remember? There were multiple stops before I remember, but um, but I know each place because I've been back to most of them. Uh, but that's you know that that for me was normal. So. Uh, it felt perfectly normal for me when I, when I, um, when my father retired and, uh, I started my band to kind of keep moving at that same pace.
1: What's the first one that you
0: remember? The first place that I remember? Yeah. It would have been, um, would have been in Georgia. I think my first memory is my sister, my, my younger sister being born and then bringing her out into the parking lot of the hospital. And my, my older sister and I were sat in the backseat and waiting, uh, uh, to, to see her for the first time. And my second memory is a hallucination because, uh, two months later, uh, my sister was born September 30th, 1962. And I was two years old. Uh, and two months later I had contracted, um, uh, scarlet fever, pneumonia, and, um, I have whooping cough, I think, but I almost died. And then I, and then I had a terrible reaction to the medication that they gave me for it. But, um, my second memory as a photographer, trying to get a picture of me in a Christmas sweater and I was hallucinating. So it was like a Jack Nicholson movie, you know, from the 1960s.
1: How how old are we talking about? Like four or something? I was two. Holy mackerel. Yeah. (laughs) It's not unusual for me to have somebody on the show that grew up a military brat. Mm -hmm. And it's such an extreme social environment because you are so bonded to Whoever is traveling with you, whoever in your family is, you know, um, with you, your mom or, or whatever, or in, in peace, you know, your mom and dad, or, you know, depending on the mix, you're also often every two years or so meeting new people and doing different stuff. And there are some people who come out of that experience very socially facile, um, like just ready to go, like. Maybe they struggle with depth, but they can just show themselves to people be like, yep, here I am. I've done this five times before. Let's go. I don't, though, gather that 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 was what you were like when you were a kid. Am I
0: wrong? I mean, I I would say that, you know, possibly one of the shared experiences of people who have that type of uh, childhood or lifestyle growing up, you know, your, your family become very, very important because they are your anchor much more than... Uh, The community or the group of friends that you might uh, make at school or out of church or in your neighborhood. And so, you know, uh, I'm very lucky uh, that I have a great family. I had a great father uh, growing up, and I, I have this very loving, very intimate, and very close relationship with my sisters. And so, but I do think that a lot of that had to do with us picking up and moving all the time. Night swimming deserves a quiet night. Backwards, so the windshield shows every street light, reveals a picture in reverse. Still, it's so much clearer. I forgot my shirt at the water's edge. The moon is low tonight.
1: When did you figure out that um, you might be a uh, a
0: weird kid? Um, weird. Okay. Well,
1: I picked that one of, out of a long <laughs> list of possibilities, but alternative seemed a little on the nose.
0: Okay. No, inter- I mean, I, I figured out queer pretty early on uh, and then and then had to figure that out because um, the categories that were available to me didn't exactly um, uh, match how I felt and... and and so that, that was a bit odd, but, um, I was the daydreamer. I was a kid that looked out the window. I'm the only boy of, 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 three kids. I'm the middle kid. I'm left-handed. Uh, I'm queer as it turns out. So there's, there's all these, and, and a military kid. So there's all these things that are maybe different from what, what other people quote more quote unquote normal upbringing might provide, but, um, that's not so different, huh? Uh, I don't know that I ever, maybe, you know what, I, I, bet, I bet I know what it was. I think probably I could always emotionally read a room, even as a very, very young child. And so there would be things going on that kids didn't need to know about, but I would look at the adults and see that something was wrong. So I would pull someone aside and say, what's what's happening? And they would routinely separate me from the other kids and say, so and has had an accident and it's because of some bad men that he met. Uh, during the war. And we're talking about a distant family member, not my father, but uh, who had a car wreck. And it's because he had been drinking and this was in the early 60s. Uh, That's a good example. though. I mean, I think I I was, I knew then that, you know, I'd go back and all the kids would be playing and no one else seemed to have tapped into this emotional dissonance that was, that for me was absolutely like present in the room, like a fog. And the parent, you know, the parents or the adults would always, in my family, they, they would, treat me with respect in terms of uh, how they answered those questions you know it's a very different time than what a parent might say to a kid now but they did their best and they did a good job maybe that's when i realized that i was a little bit different from those around me
1: and that was a that was a particular real life example that you just gave
0: yeah mm-hmm. how how old were you i would have been that was probably 5 or 6
1: that is really young to notice something like that
0: well I mean, that's just who I am. <laughs> it's okay. I'm fine. <laughs> it turned out okay. <laughs> what about the queer part of
1: it? Because you've you've had uh you've had romances with you have a, a partner who's a man right now, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and, right. But you've had you've had romances with uh women as well. That's right. Um uh w- when did you realize something and what did you realize?
0: Um, pretty early on. I mean, I think maybe, maybe as a, uh, as a young teenager, probably around 12, 13, 12, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. No earlier. Uh, i I'm placing it now where I lived at the time. So that's always a nice way. Cause I know what years we moved from so-and-so to so-and-so. So it would have been earlier than that. Probably 11, 10.
1: What did you notice?
0: I'm going backwards, aren't I? Maybe seven. That's <laughs> I consider my, Okay.
1: Four is my final <laughs> off. <laughs> <My, laughs>
0: <laughs> I consider my first sexual experience that I remember uh I was uh, either 6 or 7 years old and that happened in Germany and it was with a brother sister team I still have a thing for redheads as it turns out um and they were a good bit older than me and I think they had a more of an idea of what they were doing and it was completely fine I don't think I'm I don't think it uh, had any bad impact on me uh, but I do remember it
1: Yeah I mean what what did you even know about what that meant at the time
0: I didn't know anything I mean there wasn't much to
1: I mean, like the the thing that I thought about when I thought about that was like, it's one very difficult trauma to go through. Um, uh, I'm supposed to be this, but actually I'm this when you're gay and, you know, like I, I know what I'm supposed to be and it's definitely wrong, but it it's a, seems like a very different thing to be in a similar position and maybe, you know, not even know that. Uh, that people who are queer, who aren't gay exist, yeah. <laughs> you know, bi people or poly people or whatever. And you're just like, you just, it's just a lot of extra stuff to sort out.
0: Well, I mean, I'm, I, and I don't know that wrong is the right term, but, but, uh, you know, because when, when you're in it, it doesn't feel wrong. You just realize that, that the people around you or the culture that you're moving through might not recognize how right it is, um, right. rather than it being wrong for you, um, uh, but I'm just so thrilled that the 21st century has arrived at a place that I, you know, I feel like I've been beating that drum for a real long time. That that um, there there is a sliding scale of of desire and attraction, and we've arrived at a place where that's completely acceptable and wonderful, and in fact has has opened our minds up to a lot of concepts that that I think in the 20th century were much more kind of Uh, beaten down into uh these very binary categories that that didn't really serve not only people that felt outside of that but even the people that maybe didn't even ever have to think about it because they did feel served by it well it's a quite limiting way to move through the world if everything is black and white uh, if everything is that like hot and cold or yes and no so um so yeah, I'm just I'm just thrilled that the 21st century has put us where where we find ourselves now culturally. And and um there's a whole um different level of understanding uh about 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 these things.
1: Even more still to get into with Michael Stipe after the break. Back in a minute, it's bullseye from maximumfun.org and npr. It's bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Michael Stipe the lead singer of R.E.M. In its 31-year existence, R.E.M. sold over 85 million albums, topped numerous best album lists, and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. R.E.M. broke up in 2011. Stipe has since been working on photography, collaborating with artists like Aaron Dessner and Justin Vernon, and recording his own material, too. Here's another song. This is Your Capricious Soul. Mm -hmm.
0: Honey's got, got, got a new feeling Honey peeled herself off the ceiling Because God, got, got is revealing
1: How to serve
0: your body, how to serve your mind
1: Did you uh, make music when you were a kid?
0: My earliest memory um of I sang when I was when we lived in Germany, so I would have been six or seven years old then I was given uh, a solo part in a Christmas uh, pageant I think and my my teacher, Mrs. Fujimoto, pulled my mom aside for a variety of reasons, one because I was left handed and then she wanted to find out if if they needed to train me to write with my right hand and my mom said absolutely not two was um should we medicate little Johnny Mike. And my mother said, absolutely not. And then I needed help with spelling because I wasn't good with that. But when when I would sing, I would stand on the sides of my feet. I wouldn't stand flat footed, but uh, I would kind of. So Mrs. Fujimoto and my mom rehearsed with me uh, my part so that um, I would stand flat footed when it was my turn to sing. Well, the night came, uh, the big pageant, the big Christmas pageant, and um, uh, I stepped forward as I was supposed to do and I started singing my part. But what they didn't, what we didn't, do in rehearsal was they, we, there, were, there weren't there were lights. And so a spotlight came on to me. <laughs> I remember it, Jesse, as if it was yesterday. Uh, it was such a magnificent feeling uh, to have that spotlight, but it, it surprised me. And so, I, of course, I stood on the side of my feet and for the whole part, but I did hit the notes and I, I finished my part and stepped back into the choir
1: not only the context of that story but like the physical feeling of that story i know exactly what you mean the difference between standing on different parts of your feet mm. like i can understand why that aspect of the story is so vibrant to you even now
0: it's such a kid thing right uh but also just the the power of the spotlight my goodness i mean and i, I certainly carried that into adult uh, into adulthood huh and you were into it well, yeah, but I mean, it's thrilling, you know, there it is. That's boom. There, there, there it is. I mean, I think I sing about it in um, what song Uh, losing my religion. Not, not a, not, not a bad um, point of reference there. course that's that's not an autobiographic song at all but um but you, you understand what i'm saying But it's it's powerful to have that amount of attention on you uh, and you're there to to perform something to do something uh that's going to make people feel a certain way that there's there's immense power in that
1: how did you uh figure out that there was um you know cool punk
0: rock music in some places I was in detention uh, when I was 14, I want to say. Someone had left a cream magazine under the desk that I was sat at, and I picked it up and started reading it. And there was an article about the CBGB scene, the nascent punk rock scene in New York City, with um, a, a picture of Patti Smith. And I looked at that photograph, and I, I, I was like, that's, wow, like, that's where I want to be.
1: Do you remember what about it?
0: She just looked really, like, compelling. <laughs> otherworldly alien. She looked alien. Uh, the article was written by Lisa Robinson, who I know, uh, who's now a friend of mine. And Patty is, of course, now a friend. And I've met a lot of the people that were in bands then, or I performed with the Ramones with with my former band, R.E.M., uh, in Europe on, t- on tours in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've had the privilege to uh, be able to meet a lot of the people that were really my, teen- my teenage heroes. And in some cases, develop quite close friendships. But that just... Turned me around. I mean, that was it. I was, it was fifteen. Uh, I was fifteen when Patty's first album came out, and I bought it the day it came out, and I just never really looked back.
1: What was the first like actual place you were, or like person you were hanging out with, or like physical thing in your actual life, rather than a thing you were reading about or receiving indirectly? Uh, where you are like, oh well, this works. This this is this is the thing that I wanted. This is the thing I read about.
0: I created a community around my around my interest in punk rock. Set me apart, but no one else. Uh, I was going to high school then in Collinsville, Illinois, which is just outside of East St. Louis, um, which is just across the river from St. Louis, and so no one there had any idea of of any of this. Uh, I created that community. I turned on some. Kids that were um, uh, my age and a little bit older, who were really, really cool kids. We were like Rumblefish, and I was the guy with the glass. I was the nerd with the glasses, and they were like the guys who protected me because they were really cool. One of them had an older brother who dealt drugs, and he was really, really cool. And they were just really cool, and so they kind of protected me, and I, I introduced them to this whole world that that no one there knew about. So in a way, I kind of created that community myself. I mean, I remember going to parties with um, punk rock albums under my arm and, you know, someone would throw a garage door open and they'd have a turntable and you would play records and people would bring their records and listen to them. And nobody wanted to hear what I had to bring. (laughs) I remember making, this is really embarrassing, but kind of amazing. Um, I made uh, mimeographed. Uh, and cause Kinko's didn't exist at the time Xerox existed, I guess, but we called them mimeographs. I mimeographed, um, uh, posters that I made, uh, on eight by 10 paper, uh, that said Tom Verlaine is God. Tom Verlaine being, uh, the lead guitarist and singer for the band television from the CBGB scene. No one in my high school knew who Tom Verlaine was, but, uh, it caused this huge ruckus because it was blasphemous to call anyone God except for God. But then all the English teachers were like, "It's Paul Verlaine." <laughs> like they didn't know the, you know, they thought it was the romantic poet from France, not <laughs> some guy from the, you know, some guy from the Bowery. But anyway.
1: what did your uh, what did your dad, the the last in a long line of Methodist preachers, think about it?
0: My father wasn't a Methodist preacher. My grandfather well, wasn't.
1: The, um, the end of the long line of Methodist preachers, I should say.
0: They never caught the uh, the vandal. You know, the vandal was me, of course. Uh, but they never they never caught uh, the, the vandal. So my father didn't hear about it. <laughs> Nobody's heard about it until this interview. I don't think uh, that's pretty funny to admit, but there it is. I, what I wouldn't give to have one of those Tom Verlaine's God um, mimeograph sheets now.
1: Um, when did you feel like? Uh, when did you feel like you were there? Was it when you got to art school?
0: What is there? What do you mean there?
1: I mean, like that you were that you were inside the thing that you imagined being inside. I mean, you weren't oh. literally inside of CBGB's scene. No, at I the wasn't. time you're you're a thousand miles away from that. But
0: yeah.
1: um, art school is a whole a whole other deal.
0: I didn't feel like I was inside of it then either. I have to say, Jesse, I I, I was um I was still um you know I was very very shy and. Yeah, I I didn't I mean the 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 early punk rock scene in Athens, Georgia, which is where I moved when I was 18 to go to college was really incredible, but um I was kind of an outsider there. I do remember um there was a party that and it was, you know, the band Pylon, the um the um the Method Actors was a band here uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, um the B52s uh, the, the kind of group of friends that were around the B-52s, uh, there was a punk rock party that was happening at someone's house on some weekend night. And I was at the local lesbian bar and, um, I had taken a Quaalude and I was badmouthing some guy. I don't even remember who he was, but I didn't like him for some reason. And I was really, um, high and, um, I didn't realize I was badmouthing him to his best friend. So the guy clocked me and knocked me off a truck uh, and I got a bloody nose. And then I went to the punk rock party. So I showed up and I was the youngest person there and I had blood all down the front of my shirt and they just thought that was very punk rock, you know? (laughs) And so I think I I kind of, that was like my end into that crowd. Part of it was really sweet because they just wanted to clean me up and like make sure I was okay. And, but part of it, I think they were a little bit like, wow, this is the real thing. Um, (laughs) Anyway, <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever heard that story either. Uh, I, I have to thank Vanessa Briscoe from the band Pylon. She was the singer of that band, and she was particularly kind to me.
1: Did you really want to be a performer? The way you described being in the spotlight, I was like, oh, okay. He was not the kind of shy where he didn't want to perform. He was the kind of shy where he knew he wanted that but had to figure out how to do it.
0: Um, yeah, I... <laughs> I really can't answer that. I mean, I don't. I don't know what I was thinking, except that I just wanted to be in a band and I wanted to do that. It didn't occur to me that you know. And I've said this a million times, but it didn't occur to me that I would have to learn how to sing. I would have to learn how to or play an instrument. I was saying because I couldn't play anything, so I was like, I'll be the singer, and I wanted most of the attention. So that's where you get most of the attention. Um, but you know, if you listen to really, really early um, recordings, uh, and please don't you know, I sang like a rockabilly singer. It's all that I, I, you know, I knew Elvis Presley. So that's what I sang like. Um, and I I thought it was kind of, I didn't have a vocal style. I I have said before that, um, my vocal style developed when, when Mike, Peter and Bill, uh, the the other members of REM, um, were playing so fast, uh, that I couldn't keep up. And I thought it was too fast and they wouldn't slow down because they wanted to play really fast. So I just started slowing down my part. And that developed into a vocal style, I think, that where I held my um I held my vowels longer than you're supposed to. You know, we get that now from early Drake, but um people weren't really singing like that back then.
1: there's also a kind of quality in the earlier REM things of both like an aesthetic choice that suggests a kind of um timelessness and placelessness and mm-hmm. also that maybe uh, in your particular part of it, it it feels like you are um you know you're beyond that hiding a little bit
0: Beyond I, I'm not, beyond I, I,
1: just, beyond just trying to, beyond just trying to be unplaceable. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's both of those things at the same time. You're kind of retiring. You're, um, uh, mm. withdrawing a little bit.
0: Well, we, you know, as a, as a group, let's, let's talk about that first. Cause I think that's important. We had a distinct set of limitations, each of us. And those limitations allowed us to one, one of the, um, one of the, the rule of no was, uh, was uh, one of the things that REM always, we always knew what we didn't want. And I, as a singer and as a performer, and even as a public figure, I know exactly what I don't want. I sometimes step into it and then I got egg on my face, but I, I know what I don't, I know how I don't want to cr- come across. I know what I don't want to write. I know what my don't want my voice to sound like. I know that I don't want it to do that. Um, that kind of, uh, throat scratchy, um, uh, uh, um, calisthenic kind of vocal thing too many times because that's just dumb and sounds insincere uh so there was a lot of us being extremely limited uh and then taking those limitations and really pushing them as far as we could and within that in a group dynamic creating something that really was very very new and i don't know how timeless it wound up being um uh, i listened to it now and it's hard for me to objectively listen to our past work but i'm able to recognize stuff that i think is really supremely great and then stuff that is you know for me deeply embarrassing or not so great or mike could have used another one more edit you know or one more pass at, at, a, at, a, at, the, at the third verse you know um anyway i i, I am my greatest critic in, in that regard but i try not to look back that much i I understand that the the work is out there once the song is released into the world it belongs to everyone else and not to me and so that's that, that you know it's not it's not my place to badmouth uh, my my past work at all.
1: We'll wrap up with Michael Stipe after a quick break. When we return he'll tell us about the song he's most proud of writing. It's Bullseye from maximumfun.org and NPR
0: You're in a theater. The lights go down. You're about to get swept up by the characters and all their little details and interpersonal dramas. You look at them and think, that person is so obviously in love with their best friend. Wait, am I in love with my best friend? That character's mom is so overbearing. Why doesn't she just stand up to her? Oh God, do I need to stand up to my own mother? If you've ever recognized yourself in a movie, then join me, Jordan Cruciola, for the podcast Feeling Seen. We've talked to author Susan Orlean on realizing her own marriage was falling apart after watching Adaptation, an adaptation of her own work. And comedian Hari Kondabolu on why Harold and Kumar was a depressingly important movie for Southeast Asians. So join me every Thursday for the Feeling Scene podcast here on Maximum Fun.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Michael Stipe, the lead singer of R.E.M. Let's get back into our interview. What's something that you heard yourself do or heard on an REM record, uh, you know, sometime in the last few years where you thought, gosh, I forgot about that. That is great. Like, that really worked.
0: (laughs) Well, I can tell you, I mean, that's an easy one for me. I think one of the best songs we ever wrote was on one of the later records. And they they were just, you know, uh, uh, in America particularly, um, audiences were kind of over us. They were done with us. They were tired of me or my persona or, or had moved on to other things. Um, but there's a song called Supernatural Super Serious, which I think is one of the best things we ever wrote. Everybody here comes from somewhere. The day forget disguise. I sing it in my head all the time. I really like the I really like the chorus, and there's a thing that I do at the end is some of my best work it's nice to be able to say that I mean that's that's one thing about doing what I've done and what I did for so long uh, is that I, I I can kind of look at the work and 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 be proud of it and, and say I know that that's really really quality I know that that's really good uh, I won't talk about the things that are bad I'll, I'll talk about them abstractly but I'm not going to say this song off of this record is just a deep, horrible embarrassment for me. Because someone might use that song in their wedding or might it might be their favorites. It might be the song that they fell in love to. It's not mine to say that anymore, you know. But I, I can talk about the triumphs.
1: What was it like for you to have the life rhythm of being a performing musician when REM started? Like the first five years or so before you had hit records, but when you were working really, really hard, you know, there's things about it that are similar to to the kind of peripatetic military kid lifestyle, but like uh, there's also a real pattern of intensity and then
0: slowdown that uh is kind of all consuming. I was born hyperactive. And that pace of those first early years, traveling around in a van, starving, having exactly one outfit to wear, you know, um, having to share everything with the other guys, not having any money, not having any means of support, not knowing what we were doing next, not knowing anything about where it was going or what it might become. It it fed that hyperactivity, and, and and also the adrenaline that comes with performing, the adrenaline that comes from being in that spotlight, however small that spotlight might be, is something that I absolutely fed off of. There are, of course, very negative aspects to that, and particularly if you do it again and again and over and over and over again, you've got to really take care of yourself, um, or you're going to flame out.
1: Did you have any sense of what you had to do to take care of yourself?
0: Really not until... Much later, I mean, I, I went through a very rough period in the mid '80s where I, I had about a year and a half long nervous breakdown, and that had to do with a lot of things. When I came through that, I felt a deeper sense of purpose because I felt like I had come very close to death and and um, uh, or or to just not ever coming back, you know. And uh, so, yeah, so some good songs came out of it for sure. Uh, but but I, I I had there was a confidence and there was a there was a um, purpose. Uh, that was not there before. Before uh, that, I think I was really just enjoying the ride and enjoying learning how to write and learning how to sing and finding my voice and and learning how to be a public figure as well, which was really not very easy, particularly then. You know, this is a generation where you know selling out was something that was considered like the, the worst possible son, and uh, it's a very very different to um, the way today's generation might approach pop music or or. Uh, or performing or being a public figure. Um, <clears throat> and so that, that came with its own set of, uh, of difficulties.
1: What kind of nervous breakdown was it? Was it depression or psychosis or or exhaustion? or
0: It was depression. And it, was, it was exhaustion as well. But I, I, my, my, my adrenals were tapped out, and uh, I, I had no way to fix that. I didn't know how to fix it. I was worried for my own life. I, I was convinced that I was HIV positive. There was no way for me to test that at the time. Um and I wasn't sure that I wanted to be a, a pop star. I wasn't sure I wanted to be a public figure. I wasn't sure I wanted to be uh traveling like that or doing like doing any of the things that we were doing. You know, it was just it all compounded uh to create a really bad situation for me. And the band didn't realize it at the time, and neither did I. I didn't know what depression felt like. I'd never been through it before. Um, but this was very real. And um I came through it eventually. But I it, I mean, the story of how I came out of it is is quite intense. And, you know, we don't need to talk about it here. It was a very intense, difficult thing that happened to me. And then I came out of it. And then, I, and then I had, as I said earlier, this deep sense of purpose that I don't think that I had before. You know, before it was really just a lot of fun. And then it was pressure fun. And then it was pressure fun, but with uh, the specter of, of AIDS hanging over my head. And then pressure fun with, f- with the specter of AIDS and the exhaustion that comes from being in a continually adrenalized state. And at that point I stopped doing drugs years before, uh, and stopped drinking. And so I, it, it was really, you know, it wasn't brought about by anything like that, but it was, it was dark. It was very dark. What was the purpose that you found? I, that's a good question. I mean, I think just to believe in myself and to be who I am and to, um, I don't know. I mean, I suddenly, I just felt, uh, elevated and, um, free of the concerns and the fears that I had gone through. Uh, I flew very, very, very close to, I don't know how, I, I almost said something. I That's that's a mixing metaphors, which I'm the king of, but it got as dark as it could possibly get. It could not have gotten darker. And then uh, this thing happened and I was in literal darkness for 10 days. And then I came out of that, and I could see again and I was not blind and I was, I was alive and I was very grateful and very thankful for that. Were you working during that time? Oh, yeah. We didn't stop working. There's some good records that came out of it, truthfully. Uh, Fables of the Reconstruction uh, was during that time period. And then uh, the, the, the tour that, that was Reckoning uh, uh, from the second album uh, came out of that.
1: Well, Michael Stipe, I'm so grateful to you for taking all this time to to talk to me. We could talk for four more hours about different stuff, and I'm I'm very grateful that you took this time.
0: Thank you, Jesse. Thanks for having me on.
1: Michael Stipe, he's working on even more solo material to be released soon. So keep an ear out for it. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. There's a light on the porch outside uh, my home office here. And uh, there's been a little birdie hanging out over there. It's pretty nice. I mean, I'm not like a full-on bird guy now, but I wish the bird the best. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers, Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, who's also known as DJW. Our theme music is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Thanks to The Go Team for sharing it with us and to their label, Memphis Industries Records. Uh, Go Team, great band. It's from a great record check them out. Bullseye also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us there. Give us a follow. We'll share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.